Hello and welcome back to the other 99% podcast where we take a step back from the 1% marginal gain society has become obsessed with and instead look at the other 99%. Today we've got a very special guest, Will. Uh, myself and Will met at university and if, if you want to just give us a brief um, kind of story of what your journey's been, Will, and what you do now. Yes, so um, I suppose I'm a physiotherapist, so uh, <clears throat> sort of out of school, uh, tried to play a bit of rugby, failed at that, um, was told, yeah, you're always a bit too small, uh, so basically tried to put on a bit of size and a bit of strength in the weight room uh, and just ended up getting injured. Um, and then while I was at uh, university, sort of went down the rabbit hole of kind of injury prevention, <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, and basically got more injured. Uh, so I was kind of thinking that's not really how things are meant to work. I'm meant to be sort of lifting weights, getting stronger and having less injuries, not more. Uh, and then, so qualified in 2016 from Cardiff uh, and it just so happened that my one of my best mates uh, had just got an injury as well. Uh, he was a professional rugby player at the time and he got sent to uh, basically a guy up in Manchester called James Jalsey. Um And <clears throat> I was speaking to, to my mate about his like rehab for his hamstring injury um, and he had a bit of lower back pain as well that he, he went to see as well um, <clears throat> and the stuff that Jowsey was basically saying was like complete opposite of what I was being taught in uni like simple things like uh, to get more glute contraction instead of kind of extending and like driving the knees out in a squat and creating that external torque like you probably want to do the opposite because it will load a bit more like an elastic band um anyway yeah that just sort of resonated with me and kind of made a lot more sense to how the body will move uh so I ended up going on um james jowsey's mentorship which is called like the red pill training mentorship uh him and phil mansfield they're quite sort of uh well known in the crossfit circle i don't know if anyone's heard of them but um yeah, they train quite a lot of people in the CrossFit world. Uh, they do other sports as well, like <clears throat> football, triathlon or, or whatever. But basically, their, their whole kind of premise is trying to work on principles that apply to across all sports uh, and rehab people and, and try and push them to the performance. So sort of from that, so I think 2017 is when I started. From then on, kind of just sort of immersed myself in I suppose rehab, S and C to some degree, but just generally kind of biomechanics and, and human movement um, and found that actually it makes a lot more sense when you look at it from a sort of a principle-based lens than just kind of saying, yeah, drive your knees out in a squat. But, um, but I really like that example. We'll come back to that when we talk about um, movement and motor control in this this episode. Okay, but, yeah. um, pronation getting demonised, obviously not the right way to look at how to squat, but... What we were going to cover first was, like you spoke about, some of those rehab principles that you'd use to guide your practice when you do have someone present with whatever injury it may be. Um, so I think that'd be a really good starting place for the episode today is if, if we picked like a really typical injury you'd see in maybe rugby or um, like another injury that you commonly get presented with and then work your, work your way through that process and what principles you'd use to guide your, guide your practice. Uh, yes, yeah, so sort of what injury would you, would you like more of like an acute injury or a more like chronic long term? Uh, let's say, so that was Max, wasn't it, talking about that yep. injury? Yeah. Should we, should we start start with that? Um, work, work your way through, was that um, bicep femoral? or? So I didn't actually treat Max for his injury. He, he, I, I didn't see, I didn't assess him at all. But like, yeah, let's, okay, if you want to take like a hamstring injury, for example. Yeah, um, let's go with that. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, like, you need to know exactly the mechanism because, uh, yeah, there's, there's basically different types of uh, hamstring tears that you can have. You can have, like, an overstretching tear or you can have, like, some high-speed running or sprinting or change of direction, that sort of thing. Um, tends to be, like, are we, are we saying specific for rugby here or just in general? 
Yeah, so let's take that. That's quite a common one. Let's say it's sprinting. Okay. Um, goes, let's take that one. Yeah, so uh, that sprinting kind of version would be like obviously a non-contact injury. So straight away from the mechanism, you're kind of thinking alarm bells a little bit. Well, not alarm bells, like something massively wrong, but their body cannot tolerate the load that they've put through it rather than like an overstretching, which would be maybe someone's jackaled or something and someone's hit into a rock and their head is kind of being compressed and they've got a bit caught and they put a massive stretch through their hamstring. They haven't really got that much control over that. Um, so if, yeah, if we take the, the, take the sprinting one, that's probably a bit more uh, common to people. Um, so yeah, the mechanism of the injury is definitely key. And then I think like what sort of was overlooked when I was sort of uh, at university is like the injury history. So obviously we'd go through their past medical history and stuff like that, but like specifically like through a fine tooth comb, like their injury history, like what have they had done? Or what have they done to themselves? And even like when you're a kid. Now, it may not necessarily kind of equate to a hamstring injury, but other injuries may sort of uh, <clears throat> show up and be contributing to another injury, let's say. So uh, a knee pain, like someone's got a knee pain, for example, or, or whatever. Anyway, uh, so yeah. Um, and I'd go real detailed through through their injury history. So if you've had like an ankle sprain, a calf strain, um, potentially if you've like broken a rib or something like that, I want to know all these things because the body works as a system. So if you've had an injury at some point in your career or life, that's potentially going to have a knock-on effect to how you, you move and how you load um, during movement. So that's going to be like the first port call. And then I suppose, so if we kind of link it to kind of what I learned in the, the sort of post uni career, um, it's just looking at how the body moves in general. So I tend to get people just move, like doing a general movement assessment. So like a toe touch, like a backwards bend, side bend, rotation, maybe a squat, maybe a lunge. Um, and just generally looking how they're moving and how, body parts are moving in conjunction to one another so I don't know um, a toe touch for example would be really good for this for a hamstring one do they just like hinge at the hips or do they show some like rounding and reaching from the upper back and, and the thorax uh, do they hyperextend their knee um, to like keep their legs straight like what strategy are they using um, and all that just gives you information like what what things are actually moving and working and what things aren't working. So, uh, yeah, if we go back a step, should I say, <clears throat> if someone's had a hamstring injury from sprinting, the hamstring itself cannot deal with the load that was put through it. That would be fair to say. Now, you could say, like, it was just that one point and it became, like, that was the weakest link, if that makes sense. Or it could just be, that the hamstring was actually the link that was under the most strain. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, although you've got to like probably address actually the hamstring tear, you do have to address why it was under strain in the first place. That, Does that, that make sense? The, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you because why? Why do you think we see like such prevalence of hamstring injuries now? Or do you think it's a case that they're just reporting more often now, or like, why do you think it is such a common injury? Uh, reporting more often, probably, um, for sure. I think like what we do in the gym has a massive impact into, uh, yeah, the, the injury itself. So <clears throat> if you think about, um, if you look at the literature, like a lot of things that, that they say is like you need really um, high, like eccentric hamstring strength, like that's going to be important but there are other things such as like pelvic uh, control uh quad quadriceps and ham, hamstring ratio and i think quite a lot of the stuff that we do in the gym like a squat a deadlift all those things it's all very much like drive the chest up and um, when you like do you know what i mean like you get behind a bar someone says chest up like extension pattern the whole exactly time. yeah and by doing that, driving that chest up, that's anteriorly tilting your pelvis. Now, anterior 
pelvic tilt isn't a bad thing, but if you're constantly in that position, you're constantly putting more strain through that hamstring, or that, that hamstring is going to be in a lengthened position and therefore potentially have more strain going through it when we do things like sprinting. So I think, um, is it Jonas Dodu, like the sprint coach, Speedworks, bat, uh, Speedworks, whatever it is, yeah. Um, he'll say, like, when he's looking at someone sprinting, he'll want to see, like, the like a little bit of a roundness uh, from the, like the pelvis a little bit, but also he wants to see the hip extend and not the back extend. And I think a lot of the stuff that we do in the gym just drives that back extension, that lumbar extension, which doesn't put the hamstring in a necessarily a mechanically advantageous position. And then, yeah, and then you see it sort of ping when, when people run. I think like, sorry, yeah. Just take that back a little bit then, because I'd say probably from my experience, the greatest prevalence of hamstring injuries comes through footballers. Um, and you do see quite a lot reported in that. And obviously it's the, potentially because it's the most played sport. But what would your recommendation be then instead of those those basic exercises that, you know, we're told to do, personal trainers are going to recommend, they're kind of like the go-tos. What's your alternative to those to put people in a better position? Because obviously we are valuing what goes on in the gym. We want it to be as productive as possible. So what's the the better option yeah i think you can do those exercises but you can just change the orientation of the load so instead of doing a back squat you could do a front squat and that's going to massively reduce that kind of extension pattern um for example doing a deadlift instead of having that like cue of or, or maybe an rdl for example instead of having that cue of like chest up actually can you keep the rib cage down and stay a little bit more kind of neutral for want of a better word or the other way do you see what i mean we we don't ever we demonize like things like going too far one way but going the other way is not a bad thing you know it's just another movement option that you could have so i think doing those things isn't going to be a bad thing uh and just maybe changing like the technical or uh yeah the loading i think doing hamstring specific strengthening stuff where you're getting that pelvis moving backwards and forwards, so forward and backwards, I think is going to be, again, uh, more beneficial than doing something like a, a squat, for example, so like a hamstring, like a long lever hamstring bridge, so um, lying on the floor, foot on like a, I don't know, six-inch box, and I like digging the heel down, pulling back, and then rolling that pelvis up, you're going to get quite a lot of load through the hamstring, but you're also going to teach the body how to sort of control that pelvis whilst the hamstrings under load so That's i think that, that that wouldn't be considered like one of the the flashy exercises it's not something that people are going to put on their instagram and um, no. in the office about how much they lifted or how many reps they did but you know super important to their function and to actually what they want to do um with sport and, and activity um but it's not necessarily a, a sexy exercise to include in your program is it no no not at all and um i, th I think like as of the industry I suppose we've kind of got caught up on that bench deadlift and, and squat and actually like does it how much does it transfer to to sport and injury prevention I think it's good for a general prep but up until that point I think you probably need to specialise a little bit more and, and put the body into position where actually it's going to be in in sport that's the position that you're going to have in sport and also load up quite heavily or to, to make it robust, make that movement robust as possible. Yeah, you should be careful what you say, though, because Tommy is the biggest advocate for squat. He only says good things about squats. He's never said that they're bad, ever. Um... I, do, I, do, I don't think they're bad. I don't think they're bad at all. I think they've got, they've got their place, but it's like anything, isn't it? You need, uh, you need a variety of, of, of sure. movement. What Will was just talking about, like, it took me, I don't know, probably eight years of working as, like, an SSC coach to, like, like just a rib cage people's rib cages when they lift but once you get that stacked over your pelvis everything moves better um yeah, yeah it took me forever to to notice that um and then once you do do that your movement feels a hundred times better 100 percent. and like well let's say to you like obviously you said have your rib cage stacked over your pelvis like just because it's stacked over doesn't mean you can't go the other way so be more rounded and like uh, we can go into like rounded postures and lifting but like I feel like there's 
chest up is driven a lot in the sort of health and fitness and gym sort of industry whereas like rib cage down no you never heard that cue ever like yeah just depress your rib cage like that that, that never happens but you do that in sport though when, when you're there you've got no movement options like you spoke about if you come back to a more neutral position you can go either way so you've got more movement options but yeah I think it's been like the influence of powerlifting mainly on the industry like chest up knees out all, all of those cues come from powerlifters in like ply seats and stuff and it's had yeah, such a big impact on if, I suppose if you if you look at um like elite powerlifters though they all have spinal flexion they will be rounded and like there's you could argue there's loads of reasons why that is but in my opinion that's happening because the body wants to take up slack in the posterior chain and the best way to do that is by by rounding you know and you're then you're going to get that stretch shortening cycle you're going to then start to produce more power so yeah i I, 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 love all the squat university stuff and all the like memes people make crazy like he's done squat deeper and he just um flexes his spine yeah Yeah. yeah um yeah there, there's some good uh instagram uh handles like is it functional memeology or something like that it's quite yeah. funny yeah yeah i follow them but yeah i, I think like that it got I, I, this is how i see it because this is what happened to me i got into the gym i did uh i think it was jim wendler 531 uh <laughs> like deadlift uh squat and bench i got a bit bigger i got a bit stronger and i got a little bit better and i thought do you know what? I'm going to double down on this. And then I carried on going with that. I carried on going with that. And then I started getting injured. And it's like, yeah. that was good for that point in time, but then you need to move on or you need to like change it. Slightly. Do you see what I mean? You can't just keep on hammering the same stimulus over and over and over again because you'll lose that's moving it. options. And yeah, and that's, where, that's what I was going to say. Like specialisation is a real danger there. Like we don't want to specialise. As an athlete, that's like one of the worst things you can do. Um, like, like you spoke about, like taking away those movement options and that everything is uh, like nailed when you're just hammering away at the same thing. Yeah, so I, well, I, I, I think you do want to specialise to some degree, but you, you want to have like a bandwidth of options. If you can only do your thing one way, you bec- and that's the only way you can do it, as soon as someone puts you in a position where you have to do it another way, you're now in a bit of bother. And I think that's when you pick up those injuries. So I can't even remember the first, the, the, the hamstring injury. <laughs> that was that was what it got to the spinting. So I think uh, I think the like kind of those extensive patterns. Uh, uh, I, I don't really like saying patterns, but th- those sort of positions that we get ourselves into in the gym are, don't really replicate that well on the pitch. And I think that's potentially why you're seeing more hamstring injuries. I think at the professional level that it, there's like there's going to be lots of different variables like training load, et cetera, and all those things. And like high speed, like exposure to high speed meters, did they, did, did they have enough that week or, or whatever? I think sort of for amateur athletes, it definitely is like the, the lack of exposure to high speed meters. Like I play rugby and um, uh, like just amateur and like no one hits high speed meters like in a training session ever. Like no one goes away and goes, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna to top up my high speed meters today. It's just like run around, play rugby, do some tempo runs, hit some bags, and that's it. That's you know. So if, if, I've got a couple of questions there. So if we go back to uh, the hamstring injury, we know that what we do in the gym is never going to replicate the forces we get when we sprint. So could could you talk us through um, how you progress from that starting point? Someone's presented with a hamstring injury and how you progress them back loading wise to running at high speeds again yeah so i'd say you, you, with like a um with the, like a squat or a deadlift no you're not going to hit those those forces but i think you can hit it in other ways so uh like that hamstring bridge like that long lever hamstring bridge um there's like a you could do like a hamstring iso switch do you know what i mean where you're hitting the hitting the step pretty hard uh and sort of mimicking that um like switching action when you are sprinting but if we go right to the start effectively the first kind of two weeks of or two three weeks of hamstring rehab is pretty basic you're just trying to get a little bit of load through there isometrically um <clears throat> yeah that's uh, in in any form you can think of i tend to go through a bridge just because you can kind of make it a little bit more run specific if that's how they've done it um i would 
I would try and I load other things as well. So I would try and load the calf and the foot to work in conjunction with the hamstring. So like a foam roller bridge or something like that, where you're lying on the floor, foam roller where you're like where your foot is and you're pushing through that midfoot, trying to get your heel high and that pelvis tucking. Um, and then I, as soon as they can get into those positions and hold those for quite a bit of time, I try and get them back on their feet into a, <clears throat> into a, a, a deadlift of some description, into a, an RDL, um, into a split stance RDL. But then I'd look at kind of like a, a it, it honestly depends on the person and why they've torn that hamstring because that's where I'd be hitting the most. So if it is because they, they're massively flared and they're, they're sort of really driven up I want to try and bring their their rib cage back down and get more stacked but I'd then potentially go on to stuff like um a split stance RDL into a step up so you're getting that kind of explosive push off I may even do like like hamstring tantrums do you know what they are like with a swiss ball oh, yeah. yeah and you're like again switching trying to hit there <clears throat> and then I try and put some plyometrics into it potentially um actually i'd probably do the hamstring tantrums after the plyometrics because it's quite hard there um so some plyometrics where you're multi-directional and then just trying to put some load to the hamstring so yeah adding like a hand driver or or something to again add more load to the hamstring and then and then try and get the back onto the feet to to running because a lot of this is not wishing no, it makes perfect sense. I guess if a lot of this is movement driven, what would your recommendations be to? Because um, we're looking at this podcast of largely amateur athletes, people coming into exercise, coaches that are looking for new ideas, people that are coming back in, or coaches that want new ideas, people that are uninjured. How important is this idea of movement assessment in actually fully able? Or fully fit athletes what what sort of price do we need to put on that ahead of an injury yes yeah, so I, I um i i think it's really important in my opinion but obviously i'm going to be biased and say that um but i don't think you necessarily need to have like a one-off assessment where you go in and like oh, someone says you can't do this you can't do that go away do this like you can almost do it as you go do you see what i mean so i think um, if you let's t- let's take a typical gym example, like um, yeah, how many times does someone does someone get out of the the sagittal plane and move into the frontal plane? How many times do people go into the transverse plane? For ex- for example, um, I think those things can just be added into someone's program, and you can almost find where you're bad. At just by exploring those movements so a lunge matrix that I quite like or complex whatever you want to call it is like a forward lunge return a lateral lunge return and a rotational lunge return and you'll find places where you're tight places that you just don't you it's really awkward to move into and it may just be that you need to kind of work on those things obviously if you're seeing um if you're seeing someone to actually coach you through these things, they're going to be able to pick it up a lot quicker, but you will feel in yourself, like if you do a lateral lunge and the leg that you're leaving there, the inside adductor is really, really tight and it, compared to the other side, then there's a, there's a problem there. You know, it shouldn't be that different between the two. So that's maybe something you'd be working on. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah, so I wouldn't nec- I, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily like, I'm putting myself out of job here. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily, uh, <laughs> like if you're just like, uh, I don't know the general population and you're just trying to be fit and healthy I think the way that the program is designed can can clear up loads of these things you know um, just by taking the emphasis away from that kind of squat deadlift bench whatever and adding like some other movements into it like a lunge like that lateral lunge like the rotational lunge like a crossover step up for example where you're if you look at the pelvis, there's a lot of movement in the pelvis going laterally, rotationally, like across the body. Do you see what I mean? And you'll you'll be able to pick up on those things where you're where you're sort of I don't want to say deficient, but where you where you're not maybe as strong as 
as you are on the for other movements. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, fantastic. Well, while we're on the topic of movement, should we move on to like how how you'd approach trying to change someone's um, change someone's movement or like how yeah like yeah. say say we've got that um, squat where they're in too much extension or they're doing that. Um, lunge in the frontal pain and they've got a tight adductor what what's your approach to trying to change how that person moves yes yeah, so I, what I say is it honestly just depends on why I think they're moving in that in that way so sometimes it is the environment so for example if you put a uh, really heavy weight on someone uh, on, in a, for a back squat for example they are probably going to like go into that position just because that's the only way that they're going to be able to overcome that weight so really simply just moving that that bar is going to help massively isn't it just put it in a front back goblet squat whatever um <clears throat> but yeah i think changing the constraints is definitely definitely um one way of doing it and add sort of adding different things in like a i don't know like a slant board for example that's going to again change how people are going to be moving but i think you need to really get to the key point of why they are moving that way and now is it because they don't have a movement option the other way so if we take that, that example that real kind of extended posture can they actually get the movement backwards can they do they have that posterior pelvic tilt now if they don't have that posterior pelvic tilt like on the bed or they can't exhibit it in, in another movement um for example like a lunge or a reverse lunge or something like that, you're not seeing that movement occur then you're probably going to have to go in and teach that movement a little bit and that may be where your sort of <clears throat> more internal cues are coming rather than sort of the external cues which I know it's not the best way of doing things but I think as soon as people have that awareness of that movement it and you get them in a position where they have to they have to do that movement at, because it's the only way that they can do it that complete the task for example and you load it up a lot actually you get quite a lot of carryover to to that squat for example <clears throat> or that lateral lunge i've got a load of questions off the back of that um, first thing, have you looked at um, bill hartman's model on like infrastructure language, that kind of stuff uh a lot uh, not a lot sorry um but, uh, yeah i'll skip over that one yeah i i yeah i wouldn't be able to sort of yeah, have a so in, in, in his in his like model, like people with a wide infrasternal angle tend to deal with like compression better. So if you put a really heavy back squat on them, these are your like really tricky to compete with. So they'd be in a better position than someone with a really narrow infrasternal angle that's going to go into that extension pattern. Right. Um, but the other thing I was going to come back to is I did a workshop with Nick Winkleman like a couple of months ago. Okay, yeah, yeah. he's um, obviously he's really big on like analogies as cues and that kind of stuff. Um, but what he was talking about was external cues are never going to completely replace internal but he just uses both yeah um, so i thought if we firstly if we work through like what is internal what is an internal cue what is an external cue and what is a constraint um or like a physical constraint for the just so the listeners get like an understanding of what we're talking <coughs> about with that so what is an internal and external cue tom you went to nick wilkerman i can yeah, if you want. Um, yeah, we'll let, we'll let you do it, and then if okay. I think I do a better job, I'll, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, well, you may as well have just done it yourself. But, uh, anyway. Job. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, from from my understanding, an internal cue is when you're um, cueing someone about, like, a, a body part, like that's something internal to them. So, for example, um, where the knee should be, should it be tracking the big toe, little toe outside, or should you just be driving it out as far as you can and hoping for the best? Um, an external cue is the uh, what's the word it is the like the type of action so uh, that's not a very good example actually um, so uh, one would be like imagine there's like a laser beam coming from your chest out in front of you you want to keep that laser beam I don't know dead straight do you see what I mean that's not a very good example to be fair um, but yeah, you're you're thinking more about the actual how the task looks or the the outcome of the task rather than the task itself. Yeah, yeah. So your 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 focus of attention is something external to you instead yeah, of yeah. a body part, like you said. <clears throat> yeah. And then um, a physical constraint would be like you've already mentioned, like a slant board or that yeah. that type of stuff where 
Yes. Um, there's something like physically actually changing the way you self-organizing yeah. that movement. Yeah. So yeah, I, in my, again, from my from my understanding, or uh, is like yeah, like that slant board where you're changing the environment to change the the task at hand slightly. And Would then, you agree, Tom? Yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> so like, and the, the really interesting part about all of this research is that we know constraints are the most effective for changing the way someone moves, physical constraint. Mm -hmm. Then we know ex external focus of attention is better than internal focus of attention. But for some reason, as coaches, we've like massively biased all our coaching interventions toward in, towards internal cues, which makes no sense, but it's what we all do. Um, that's where Nick's trying to say, like, we're never going to get out of that habit, probably. But we, we can build on that with external cues and constraints. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And like, I think what I'd say on that is like say for example if I do want to change someone's let's just stick to the pelvic because we've spoken about hamstring a lot yeah. say for example I do want to have that I want that pelvic uh tilt I want that posterior pelvic tilt because they're they're stuck in that anterior pelvic tilt I I may explain it to them that that's what I want but then the cue that I'd give them is like I want to be able to slide like a book underneath your bum but not your back do you see what I mean like and people can understand like kind of understand that and I, I think it's like halfway house between internal and external. But I also think having that kind of internal and then, sorry, I should caveat that. And then once they've got that position and, and it's the position that I feel like is good for them, telling them that and then them having that internal awareness of, right, that was successful. That's what success looked like. And then potentially going back and then doing it again and saying, that's not what success looks like. So they have that, that was right. And when I did it this way, that was not right let's say because it's not wrong but Something important isn't it because tommy what you're saying is we tend to go internal but as people that sort of work in the industry or maybe have you know been training for a long period of time we know what those things feel like and we know what they should look like ourselves whereas the people that are perhaps coming to us or looking for this advice actually don't know what that looks like they don't know what it feels like so it is really important to have that that different information that's being fed in this is a good example um you know if we take it back to sports why we do demonstrations isn't it it's visual guidance um in sport is this is what your line out lift um technique should be for example and if we if we stick with this runner who's in um, a lot of anterior pelvic tilt, what would your approach be to trying to trying to change that? If you and we, we've been very careful not to use the word like technique in this episode so far. Um, if, if if you could give us your views on um, like what you would deem as good or bad technique, or when you'd actually try and intervene to change someone's technique, because there's a big trade off between performance in the short term versus potential long-term gains when you do, do try and change someone's technique? Yeah, so I wouldn't... It's a hard one because it's always like, it depends. Yeah. Are they are they in that... Are they in anterior pelvic tilt? And <clears throat> can they go further? Does that make sense? So in actual fact, they're... Yeah, and can they... But can they go posteriorly? Like, can they tilt it posteriorly? Like, if they can, I'm not going to necessarily change anything. It's, I think it's not necessarily about changing to their technique because I don't, I, I think it's going to be very hard pressed to change their technique. But I think giving them the tools and the movement options to be able to do that, their body will self-organize to be like, the to go the most efficient way. So if someone has that anterior pelvic tilt, that's probably the most efficient way for them to be running at that period of time. Now, if you give them that movement option by uh, teaching them how to do that posterior pelvic tilt and you, you give them exercises where the only way that they can complete the exercise is by doing that posterior pelvic tilt. So, for example, like that hamstring bridge where that long lever hamstring bridge, they're having to tuck under, they're having to get a massive load through the hamstring and, and their calf. Um, and I, that's just one example, by the way that may be enough to be able to say to their body actually this is a better way of doing things this is more efficient i'm just going to take this route you know i i say it's just like the way i see it in my head is if you get if you go from a to b and you always go the same way if someone shows you like a shortcut you kind of forget the way that you went, went before you go the other way you take that shortcut and that becomes now your way to get from a to b yeah because we spoke 
um, in a previous episode about self-organisation when running and how um, footwear and barefoot running has become quite fashionable and how people change their running technique quite like significantly based on these things. But we've been running in a certain way for, you know, potentially years because that's what's worked for us. Now, if you're saying that there's potentially a better way to do things, do you think that people need to perhaps consider regressing total load, total mileage, that sort of thing? Or if they're working in a, a way that's kept them injury free, their technique to use that word is, is fine for them. Um, do you think it's fine just to keep going with that and work under those constraints? Or would you say, no, nah, actually, you do need to change this to become more efficient? So they, they so the question is, they've got their technique and yep. you're just saying, should, should we change it? So I, should we I, try and change it? Well, a lot when we're looking at sprint technique with, with young people and, yep. you know, some of them say, oh, you run right. like feet from friends you know limbs <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Limbs. i see what you mean yeah, yeah it's definitely wrong we need to bring it back closer yeah. to the mean um but obviously there are sort of less drastic deviations than that yeah i think it's an interesting one because i always go to the i always go back to like why are they doing it that way you know like there is a reason why their body is presenting that way and you can you can tell them like what or you can show them or whatever the the way to do it you still you need to get to the root cause of why they're doing it that way now i'm not i'm not a sprint coach i'm not a running coach whatever but if if a running coach came to me and said look they're to get them more efficient we need them to extend more the hip here now they could be in full, in their full extension do you see what i mean so yeah. th there's no point of me trying to drive that more extension because it's it's not gonna we're not gonna get anywhere from there does that make sense? a full hip extension should i say but it may be that <clears throat> we can change like their sort of their like torso angle slightly i don't know if, if that's just an example um yeah. So the question is, well, the answer is I don't know, and it depends. <laughs> I suppose is 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 the answer because everyone is going to be different. Everyone's going to have like a a different technique, and the literature will say about if you said about injuries, like there's no, there's no like perfect technique, and there's no technique that's going to reduce your risk of injury. It's just going to be again. I'll go back to it, that movement option thing. Yeah, because sometimes I look at people who are running down the street and I think, how the hell are you moving like that pain-free? And I definitely move better, in inverted commas, and can't stay fit for five minutes. Um, but you're right, they're working under their constraints and kind of the movement that works for them, I suppose. Yeah, and what I'd say as well is like the body is like really, really adaptable. So like <clears throat> they may be running in that like, awful way but they've just steadily increased what they've, they've been doing and actually their body sort of over time just become a bit more accustomed to it um whereas like yourself like always in the first like for five minutes like again like i'd ask like what is the why like do you know what's being what's being injured what what's being injured are you is it a load issue or is it like a previous injury issue and is there anything in your history that's like really impacting your the the way that you run you know if someone's had like a an acl or an achilles uh, rupture that's gonna not just affect their their strength but like their timing their rhythm their sort of reactivity when they hit the floor their ability to manage that load when the when the floor hits back at them do you see what i mean so is it yeah. is it something along that chain that's actually the reason why you're getting injured when you run i don't i, I don't know your injury history but i saw this as a quote and it was something along the lines of we can grow an entirely new human from an egg and a sperm in nine months and it can have a brain and be working perfectly but if you sprain your ankle once it'll take six months to heal it'll never be as good again yes yeah, so, uh, yeah I, like um that's really interesting so like one of the big things that I like when when we first started this conversation about like injury history, 
I will go through each body part and say anything wrong with the ankle, anything wrong with your knee, and go through these things. And I'll say like, have you been over on your ankle? Like, have you gone over on your ankle ever? Uh, like even on a night out, just like drunk. Because and the reason why is because it it changes so many things. Like I think they did a study like two years after uh, like a simple ankle sprain, people had instability from it in comparison to the other side. So like if you think about that ankle sprain and you've been running on it for two years, it's not been doing its job as well as it could have been for two years, which means something else is going to have to do the job for you. So that's what, and this is when I see like the car, like the Achilles potentially, the calf, the, the patellar tendinopathies, like, do you see what I mean? So it's, it, everyone is, <clears throat> everyone is different. So that's why I always say it depends. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I think another interesting bit of research around that is, and you've touched on this already, but after we've had an injury, coming back, you tend to lose movement variability and then you've got less options and then you're more likely to do it again. It's what we see in like elderly populations when they're more prone to falling, they lose movement variability. So then anytime they go outside of what their like reduced bandwidth is, then they fall over or then you get injured again. Or um, So again, this is probably what you do for your rehab process as well, but try and encourage more movement variability throughout that so they've got movement options yeah so um <clears throat> uh, yeah completely completely agree so again just increasing their movement options but i think what is um like really really good for this is like adding like a hand driver in so like a lunge and like a reach somewhere and it could just be a completely random reach like you could be reaching overhead you could be reaching to the floor you could be rotating and if you're if you're doing that that right like say for example you lunge onto that right leg that right leg is now having so many different things that it's now having to sort of organize and, and st stabilize and then produce a movement do you see what i mean so yeah i think we again I'll, I'll bang on it again we see the gym as these three defined movements and variations of those movements or maybe let's say four like we'll say yeah, a squat, a hinge, a push and a pull. And I think actually there's such a variety of movement that we need in our body and that we just don't get uh, through those traditional programs. I'd love to get your take on one of my favourite ever quotes is um, Angus Bradley, if you're going to deadlift like shit, make sure they're all shit. And what, yeah. what we touched on was um, the body's very adaptable, like it will build up tolerance to the stress that you're placing on it over time so if you're gradual there's not really any good or bad positions could, could you just talk about um your your thoughts on that yeah so like um if you if you see a guy in the gym deadlifting with a like real rounded back like he may be in pain he may not be in pain but he always does it that like with that round he just kind of just pulls it off the ground um so yeah i <sighs> there's no perfect way of moving but what I would say is there were like again movement options that is literally the the, the thing that I, I can't stress enough like uh yeah yeah like yeah <laughs> you get strong through the ranges we work in yeah. most. yeah and like if you're if you just want to be fit and healthy like pick pick a variety of them and just work through those ranges if you want to be really good at like sport pick the ranges that you're going to be in the sport like if you're a prop in rugby you need to be very very strong at that scrummaging position like it it there's no point of trying to do the splits or anything like that because you're not doing it in the sport if you're like a yeah a ballerina you probably need to do more mobility work you know you probably need to work on those things that that you require in the sport so yeah, the, I can't remember your exact question, Tom, but your body is massively adaptable. You you should you can train it however you want, basically. Um, but what it will do is it will push you to one direction or the other. For, yeah. If, if you're very conscious of how you're doing things in the gym, like the setup and every rep looks the same, you're going to be very good at that. But as soon as you get pushed out or into a different plane of motion or into a slightly different movement, you're going to be very, very weak. Or, or struggle in that movement, shall I say, not very, very weak. So that was the question, movement. Tom. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I've got, I've got the same thought process. Like, I don't think round back deadlifting is inherently bad for you, but 
just it just looks so ugly I'll never have it in me to coach someone in public like that um but I don't know how we're going to get away from this like viewpoint that oh that movement's going to break your back or that movement's going to hurt your knee or yeah so again I don't think there were bad movements like like say for example if uh, I don't know you took like Joe Vlogs from the street never deadlifted before and then just started like getting into deadlift with the round of back, it's probably going to flare up his back slightly. You know, it, it probably will do because you're putting more load onto his lower back than than he has had in however many years of his life. But I think if you gradually, in, like, gradually increase the load through there, that's fine. What I would say, though, on that is that if you're looking to, like, develop certain characteristics or certain qualities like your glute strength or whatever and you're like feeling a deadlift in your lower back you're probably not doing the exercise justice you see what I mean like but that's like saying that's like saying the squat like the number of people that just feel their back when they squat it's like you're yeah. not doing it properly yeah exactly that's that's like saying oh, I want to get really good at running but I'm going to go swimming like it's yeah, you're just yeah. doing a completely different exercise it looks similar but you're not you're not really hitting the thing and like some people say well actually yeah the glutes probably working in that in that that rounded back position and yeah you could argue that it is uh, and it definitely is but if you just want glute development then that's not going to be the best way of doing it on the thought okay, so yeah, i take a message from this is that there's no bad movement but load the tissues that you want to train yeah I, well yeah i think the the take a message from all of it is uh, there's no bad movement you need movement options train the options that you want to be good at uh yeah Think about your injury history. If you have anything major in your, or not even major, that's going to have a knock-on effect to things. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I suppose again we touched on the motor court control. If you if you do have those injuries, your body will self-organise. In my opinion, to avoid those those injured areas. So, if you have that hamstring tear and you don't fully rehab it two years down the line, you're probably probably going to have a, a bit of a problem there if you do put that hamstring under a bit more load. But equally, you could also have like a lower back issue because now your lower back is extending more to take the slack for, from the hamstring. One of the other questions I was going to ask you that I had in my head as we were going through this was, um, and I don't know anything about this, I've just seen it, the the biopsychosocial model and how that influences your practice. Have you looked into that research? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it, it, it does. And... I've not actually. I've just heard this terminology. So if you could just start with what the biopsychosocial model is, I've got a vague idea. But yeah, I, I, from, from my point of view, it's just looking at the the, the person holistically. So, um, like, pain isn't isn't just a biomechanical thing. So we've spoken about pain. Uh, uh, sorry, we've spoken about biomechanics like that. Just because you have these things doesn't necessarily going to be in pain, or just because you do these things doesn't necessarily be in pain. So it's about having a look at the whole the whole person rather than just their lower back. And I think that kind of comes back to the thought process right at the start. It's like, you need to look at the whole system. You know, like, like is this person got a hamstring tear because actually they've their job is shit. They're really, really stressed. They, their missus just broke up with them. They're having a bad day. They weren't out to train. Like train. Um, <clears throat> they weren't feeling very fresh. And they did like a, a little bit of a sprint and they pinged the hamstring. Like... We can talk about all those biomechanical things and all their training things, um, like to put on side. The reason why that hamstring tour was because of the the sort of the the psychological and social aspect there. So yeah, to that quite a few years ago when I was at uni about major life events and yep. injury incidents, and it didn't necessarily have to be. Um, you know, potentially a breakup or losing a loved one or something like that. You know, it could actually be positive things. So things like getting married, moving house, all these things put stress on our our body, our mind, and they have the same impact as one another on the incidence of injury. So it's not necessarily just the bad stuff either. No, 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 not, not at all. And I think like that's a really good point that like the body just perceives stress as stress, you know, or like it's not, uh, yeah it's not good or bad it's just stress i think i can't remember who did it but you know the the cup of water analogy yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i can't remember who said but like yeah every day you have a cup of water if it's half full and you you put more water in it's going to overflow and you're gonna sort of 
spill the water. <laughs> uh, same with stress. If, yeah. Other than um, James Jowsey, who have been like, big influences for you? Uh, yeah, so James Jowsey, Phil Mansfield from Redfield Training, that, they like sort of opened my eyes to think like actually like just being strong probably isn't good enough. You need to do other things. Uh, you need to, yeah, look at how people are moving. Um, Dave O'Sullivan, so he's um, England Rugby Union, Rugby League uh, physio um from post sports academy he's he's been quite a big influence on me again kind of more so bridging the gap between people who are in pain to get them out of pain as quickly as possible and get them into that rehab process as quickly as possible um someone i haven't actually like learned off him i sort of like spoken to him or anything like that but like david gray rehab uh that's what he's on instagram he he like I've sort of read a lot about what he's doing and, and listened to some podcasts with him and he's a really interesting bloke. Um, yeah, very sort of similar, I suppose, um, thought process. Yeah, he was, yeah. Um, but he's gone like, <clears throat> David Sullivan does like breathing stuff um, and, and movement stuff, but like I think David Gray is taking it to like the, another level really. Um yeah, he, he's really interesting because he, he'll like, he's all about giving people movement options um, as quickly as possible and just like drill those movement options and yeah, and a lot of, a lot of breathing, he doesn't want to be known as the breathing guy, but he does, in my opinion, he does a lot of breathing stuff, which is I think pretty cool. Yeah. Anecdotally, I've actually found this quite interesting because I was probably about as against breathing for meditation pain management as it's possible to be anyone who came near me with that i said i was ridiculous and dismissed it um i've been doing this and tommy and i spoke about it on another episode um i've been doing the stuff for about a month now and i have stopped taking any pain medication that i've been prescribed for a long period of time so after a month i'm taking nothing um, I couldn't tell you why, couldn't tell you if it's um, all psychological, you know, when you said about looking at the whole person. Um, I just think there's so many different avenues that people can go down. It's almost, it's almost a little bit confusing, isn't it? Um, yeah, I feel like like a, an hour conversation just doesn't give it, give anything to do with movement justice or like to do with pain justice. Like, yeah, I, I know what I said. So with regards to the, the Wim Hof stuff, is that like, have you been doing like the hyperventilation? Like, yeah. yeah so the force breathing um and and the cold water stuff okay. um and i honestly i couldn't say that there's anything i could pinpoint other than once i've done it i just feel really relaxed yeah um and that's been good enough for me but it's actually had this knock-on effect where i've seen other benefits as well and it's been brilliant i'd recommend yeah. it to anyone yeah and so like what i'd say with the wim hof thing is like your I haven't done Wim Hof, I've just seen, sort of seen it from afar, but what I see is like that kind of hyper, like um, ventilation. And I think if you're, I think everyone, anyone should try it, it should, I think, probably work for people. Uh, but if you are kind of more that sort of stressed person and you are in that kind of anterior pelvic tilt and that, that rib cage up, like it could sort of push you more into that position. Does that make sense? That's, that's from a biomechanical point of view. But from, um, like a physiological point of view it could simply just be that if you are really really stressed doing that breathing just puts you in the parasympathetic nervous system so then actually you are a bit more relaxed so during your day you're not in the sympathetic sort of drive from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep you're actually getting that rest and digest and that relaxation into your into your system and your overall stress is reducing which then brings it underneath your threshold which gets you kind of out of pain that's the, the um like the breath hold stuff that comes with it it's when we breathe yeah. out that's the sympathetic response and that breath hold is a an extended version of that so basically yeah just reducing that stress response through that yeah i think so i i give patients breathing stuff um i don't ever do this sort of wim hof stuff because i think they'd uh <laughs> they'd look at me a bit funny but what i say to people is like can you inhale through your nose, have a pause, and then can you exhale through your nose and have a pause? And the amount of people that will just inhale through your nose like, like that, and then and then struggle to have that pause and be 
and then struggle to have a pause again before the inhale is like unbelievable. You'll see, like, I'll get them lying on the on the plinth and do like a little bit of breathing exercise, and you can see like in the first like couple of breaths the panic in their in their face, like I'm going to die because I haven't got oxygen, <laughs> like I haven't taken a breath, like I need a breath. So like, I think any sort of breath control uh, and having that kind of smoothness in your breath is 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 vital. Uh, not vital, but it's 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 something that I think is massively overlooked. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that the kind of area you're looking into more now, or what kind of areas are you really digging into at the moment that you're interested in? Uh, so breathing does um, interest me. I've kind of been interested for a while, mainly because I've broken my nose three times and my cheek yeah. uh, once. So I literally like. Uh, an inhale through my nose is a bit difficult so I've been uh, I've been, You've been doing that decongestion thing where you hold your nose and then yeah the uh, the CO2 tolerance stuff yeah. or whatever it's called yeah is that Patrick McEwen the oxygen yeah, yeah. yeah yeah I've done a bit of that it does work to be fair but it, yeah so it, my nose is no rhyme or reason to it. I wake up one morning it just be blocked and I'd just be buggered <laughs> um, yeah um, plyometrics is something that I've been looking into a lot uh, recently and just having like different um, different variations and, and the reasons why you choose those variations there's a guy um, is that off the back of I know David Gray's been talking about that recently like the, the stiffness yeah the, compliance. yeah the the yield the yielding and the bracing so that yeah that, that, that does interest me um, I just think it's a big it's it's a thing that you just like you never learn at uni or you, you learn it was like yeah do three hops and a stick and just stick the landing and just see what happens but I think there's so much more to it I think if you can get someone doing like a, a plyometric or like yeah anything like that where their their foot is working really well and their timing um of the movement and the rhythm of the movement is really good I think that's gonna have it will have so such good effects and be so beneficial for people who are returning to to sport because I think that's what tends to happen is like you, you do some strength exercises you get out of pain you do a little bit more you feel stronger right crack on off you go on the pitch but actually there's a massive chunk that we can kind of get you to before you even start running and I'd say like we haven't really talked about um like ACLs and stuff like that or like knee injuries but I think people the first question is like when can I start running like well no if we can get you to like like hopping and stuff is going to be a lot a lot harder than running so if we can just get you really really good at that and really like pain-free doing that the running will become easy so don't worry about the running like don't rush to run like rush to get really really good at hopping and I think the running should just fall into place um yeah but yeah, so plyometrics is something I've been looking into quite a lot. <clears throat> and what, what kind of direction do you see? I, I feel like, and I'm not too in the physio world, but I feel like there's been this big movement from, like we spoke about at the start, um, these movements are bad, then we're shifting to no movements bad. Like, where, where do you think, what direction do you think it's going in next? I think it just goes in circle, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it seems like to me. Because when I was at uni, it was like... Uh, just yeah just load like load everyone load everyone get everyone strong and then it was just like yeah it's like don't do this don't do that yeah to be honest I don't really know I think it is getting better I think um I think what people what tends to happen is people do something for such a long period of time don't get results and then they change it so like or they get some results but it's not it's not necessarily what they what they expect so for example myself like I, I was training, I was doing the rehab and stuff. I just wasn't, I wasn't getting results. So I went off and found something different. And I think this stuff is now coming into like the mainstream therapy. So for example, if we, again, we never really finished the, that hamstring question, but um, that uh, when I was at uni, it was like Nordics are really, really good for hamstrings. If you do a Nordic and you're really, really strong at a Nordic, you'll never get a hamstring tear in your life. 
and then it's someone yeah yeah and and some of them people would do like do them all the time and then someone who had like the strongest hamstrings on on the nord board tore their hamstring it's like well that's a load of rubbish isn't it <laughs> like it well maybe not a load of rubbish but it's not the whole picture and i think i can't remember who it is i think it's there's there's a uh, like a spanish researcher and he's looked into sprinting and pelvic pelvic um uh, mechanics and he's basically there's a there's more evidence coming out that actually the the positioning and the movement of the pelvis is is quite important when it comes to hamstring strains and like the rib cage and the pelvis are linked so uh yeah i think it's coming around to like look like a bit more holistic i suppose uh but yeah we'll probably it, we're like flawed as humans because we want one answer. It's like, oh, I just need to do loads of Nordics. So I'm not going to get a hamstring injury. Yeah, and I would love, I, yeah, I'd love it if it was that easy because it, it would just be easy, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, just, there you go. There's some exercise. Off you pop. That was one but, of the things we're going to ask you about today was uh, Ben Patrick Nido-Rotero's guy. Just do ATG split squats. You'll never get knee pain again. Like, it's, it's too yeah. simplistic, but I was going to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so to be fair, I've 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 looked at his stuff. I haven't looked at the actual program, but I've just looked at the stuff that he's posted on YouTube and Instagram. And like, yeah, he, it's like one size fits all, isn't it? Really. What I would say to that, what he's done is like again showing that actually your your knee can go over your toes and it doesn't explode. Like it's not going to be. It's not the worst thing in the world if that happens. Now, for some people it's not going to be uh, necessarily the best thing for them to be doing. Um, but yeah, I think because he does like, it's like graded exposure, isn't it? Like his whole thing is like, my grand can do it, a version of the split squat or whatever it is. Like, so I think from that point of view, it's really good because it's showing like people actually, if you just regress to something a lot simpler and then slowly work your way up to these more complex movements and these sort of, I suppose increased strength in, in the knee, then that's it, it, you're gonna reduce your knee pain. But it, again, we'll go all the way back. <laughs> Why are they getting knee pain in the first place? <laughs> like, is it that their knee is doing far too much work? Is it the thing that's in the chain that's under too much strain? Now, if it is, regressing the exercise and working all the way back up will help you at some point because you'll just be generally strengthening you're reducing the amount of load that goes into it and, and slowly working back up but at some point you're going to hit that threshold and when you hit that threshold i uh, in my opinion more and more strength work and more and more of those exercises do not help <laughs> you need to find out the reason why that knee is is um is is painful and it not being strong enough is not the answer might it be the answer for some people it could be it, it it genuinely could be but i would i would say that it's it's still because their knee was under too much strain to begin with does, yeah. does that make sense so like for example yeah. if um uh yeah let's take a non-contact acl mcl okay they go through their right foot down to step their knee um, goes, like, dives in, they tear uh, their ACL. That knee now probably needs strengthening, the, all of the muscles around the knee. Well, I would say to, to you is why did that happen in the first place? And now no one's going to be able to tell you exactly what happened, but it could be that actually they had an old hamstring tear that they never rehabbed. And actually they had their, their distal hamstrings didn't, couldn't control the knee going into valgus. Now they can't, do you see what I mean? Yeah. So actually, they'll strengthen the knee up. Getting a bit stronger will help the knee, but actually, they probably need to address the hamstring deficit. That they have does that yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I think for some people it it can work. Um, like I think for the I'm not I don't want to say general population, but I think quite a lot of people who don't train at all probably do need to get a little bit stronger. I think if you are training and you're in some sort of like training program of some of some description whether that just be you go to the gym three times a week or whatever and you're developing these issues i think it's probably something else that's causing those issues that would be my that'd be my sort of guess anyway so the takeaway 
for the individual listening to this today? There's not a lot. (laughs) Is that, you know, they may be struggling with one particular issue, but actually um, identification of the root cause, I think, has been a recurring um, sort of thing that's come up through this and actually not assuming that perhaps we know the answer because we're all masters of self-diagnosis and WebMD does absolutely nothing to help anybody. Um, so actually probably recommending go go and see a professional like yourself early um, to get that kind of holistic view is really, really valuable in the long term. Without diving into the personal development space, it's Simon Sinek, start with why. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I think like it may not be... Um, like obviously go see a professional if you've got a problem like yeah but it could be just simply as like I'm getting some knee pain write down what you've what you've had happen to you in the past like and is actually is there a pattern to it is everything all your injuries like all your hamstring tears all your calf pulls your ankle sprains is that all on the right side now if it is then I would probably say like you may need to do a little bit of work on those structures and that may help you in the long term anyway it could be completely different yeah. It, it could be actually like yeah I've got all these injuries but they don't they don't really kind of tie into it so it could just be yeah that your knee's getting a bit overloaded so yeah yeah the why like Tom said it's your favourite Tommy that isn't it a summary of that is start with why the other take ends we had were movement variability is, is a good thing you tend to lose that especially doing too much sagittal plane work which is up and down versus frontals left and right and transverse which is rotational um, yeah. in, in the gym our other key take-homes were apart from, apart from that you need to build up progressively when you're going through that rehab process and there, there's plenty you can do other than just getting strong in your squat bench and deadlift before jumping straight back into into running yeah, I would, I would recommend definitely doing more than that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, Will, thank you very much for coming on. We'll, um, no worries. I think we've just about got to the hour mark, haven't we? Yeah. So, yeah. Listeners, if you're still with us, thank you very much for <laughs> listening and tune back in next week where we're going to get another guest on the show. Um, so stay tuned for that one. Yeah, thanks so much, Will. No worries. All the best. See you guys. Bye.